Hello, welcome, and thanks for checking in today to No Vacancy, the podcast. I'm your host, Natalie Palmer. I'm an Airbnb ambassador and 17-time super host, and I've hosted over 1,000 reservations. I'm a stay-at-home mom of two and manage my eight listings remotely. My mission is to help new and experienced vacation rental hosts turn their listings into fully booked, profitable properties that can be managed from anywhere, so you too can have no vacancies. If that sounds good to you, let's get right into the show. Do you want to know the number one most common message I receive from listeners of this show? It's always something like this. Hey, Natalie, so I'm fully bought in on wanting to start or grow my short-term rental business, but I just don't know where to invest. How do I know if the property or market I'm looking at will be a good investment? Does that sound like you? You've been listening to all of the podcasts and reading all of the books on how to manage your place, but none of this education is going to mean anything if you don't first find the right property. This is why I am so excited to share with you that the team at STR Insights has launched a new service where they will help you find an investment property that meets your goals. Whether you're looking for cash flow, cash on cash return, or long-term appreciation, STR Insights will first help you define your goals and then identify the market and property that is right for you. The team is made up of STR investors and operators themselves, so they know what to look for in terms of a good market and property and will make sure that you can legally operate in the areas that they point you to. Right now, STR Insights is offering listeners of No Vacancy a free call to help first-time or seasoned investors find the next deal that will help you meet your goals. Just click the link in the show notes of this episode to book your call, and if you want to learn more, go back to episode 68 and check out my discussion with the STR Insights CEO, Kenny Bedwell. Like I said, they have a 100% success rate, so you have nothing to lose by scheduling your free call and getting you one step closer to finding that perfect deal. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of No Vacancy, the podcast. I'm your host, Natalie Palmer, and today we've got on Jeff Welgan, who is an investor financing strategist with Blueprint Home Loan. I'm super excited to have him on. I heard him give a presentation at a real estate meetup recently about the different programs and strategies available to short-term rental investors and really found it valuable. So asked him to come on and here we are today. Jeff, do you want to introduce yourself? And then we're just going to dive right in. I know that you have a lot of value to offer. So yeah, let's not waste any time. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you for the invite, Natalie. I'm excited for this. Yeah. So my name is Jeff Welgan with Blueprint Home Loans and I've been in the mortgage industry for 19 years now. And we really focus on helping our clients build and scale their real estate businesses. And that's really our specialty. And, you know, I've had the the pleasure and the challenge of working with investors for the majority of my career. And one of the things that we really strive to do, and like looking back early on, before I was actually in this industry, I was trying to get into real estate investing myself. And I made a number of calls to a number of different lenders, got 15 different answers. Nobody could give me a clear and concise answer on how to reach my goals and where I wanted to be. So there was a, you know, obviously a problem there that I saw. And I'd been moving toward getting into the real estate industry at that point in my life. And so I became a loan officer, spent a lot of time working with just about everybody for the first probably five to 10 years, really learning the business and understanding 
the ins and outs and nuances with mortgage lending, and then really got focused over the last 10 years on just investors. And so my team and I, we just, we focus specifically on real estate investors and we look at it from the perspective of how can we make your lives as easy as possible? And we really thought through all of the problems that, you know, investors experience. So question for you, the last time you took out a home loan, did you love the process? No, I think I blacked out. I don't even remember. It was just like every day getting an email, like we need this and this and this form. And then meeting like husband, help me, help me organize all of this and send it off. Yeah. I blacked out during the whole process. (laughs) Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's the typical response that I get, unfortunately, especially for real estate investors, because there are complexities. I mean, real estate investors are challenging to work with because of the different structures and the layers. It's not as easy as just a W-2 buyer that's coming in to buy a home for the first time. And so what we've done is we put together, first off, I built a team of investor strategists. So there's six of us now, and we're continuing to grow and scale. We recently just became a bigger pockets preferred lender. I'm not sure if you saw that. So exciting. Yeah. We're sponsoring, we're going to be at PPCon. And so we're building this thing out as we speak. And the, what we're really focusing on doing is simplifying the process to make this as easy as possible. And it's not really a one size fits all because we have some clients that are just starting out and they're trying to buy their first house, but they're interested in real estate investing and don't know how to go from renting to their first house, you know, let alone 10 properties. And so that first home is always the most difficult because it's, mm-hmm. it seems like such a high barrier to entry. And so what we're doing is we're trying to simplify that, educate our clients that look, it hasn't been this easy in 20 years to take out, to buy your first home with down payment assistance. And you know, with the strategy that we use for beginning investors, basically what you do is you can come in with little to no money down, What's happened over the last you know, year to 18 months is the Biden administration has released more down payment assistance money than we've seen since the early 2000s. You know, we're really going through a period very similar to the Clinton administration and the five or 10 years that came after that, where they really, the big push is to get as many first-time homebuyers and low to moderate income families into homes. And so what they've done is we can do you know, nationwide 101.5% financing. And in some states, we can go up to 105% financing. So basically means we can do 100% of the purchase price and up to 5% of the closing costs. And so we have clients that are coming in, buying their first house with a couple thousand dollars and then living in it for a year. And then you can buy your next one. And so what's nice is, is that, you know, the way the rules set up, and this is the way investors, you know, that don't have a lot of money, that just are looking to get started. You can buy two properties in one year with very little money. So you can do down payment assistance on your first one. The second one, it'll be somewhere between three and a half and 5% down. You do you know, two properties in a year, and then you can do that theoretically every year. So when it's outside of 12 months, you can buy your next primary. And I have some clients that have bought eight or nine properties this way over the years. If you want to move that often, you can't. I, I would never sign up for that. I get tired <laughs> of moving at this point in my life, but that is one way to scale. It's one of the slower ways. But it's a good way to start saving money, you know, as you start cash flowing. Because as you're buying your next property, your the one you were living in turns into a rental property. Mm-hmm. We can use the rents to help you qualify for the next one, and you build that way. And then as you continue to save money, then we can start looking at other programs like the ten and the fifteen percent down options that I'm sure all of your your audience have either heard of or used. And I mean, we can get into the details on that if you'd like. But they're the big difference between those two 
you know, with the 10% down vacation home loan, it's a personal use loan. So it is not an investment property loan. You can't use it for long-term rentals, but you can use it for short-term rentals because there's no set guidance on how long you can rent it when you're not there. You do mm -hmm. need to use it for personal use. It's not two weeks. I don't know who made that up in my industry, but we recommend oh, yeah. anywhere. Yeah, I've everybody says everywhere. two weeks and it's, it's not. So the guideline with Fannie Mae specifically states that you need to use it for some portion of the year. And we- For personal loans, use. For personal use, correct. Okay. And you know we sell loans directly to Fannie Mae. So we've confirmed this with them that there's no set guidance. There's no restriction on how long you can rent it while you're not there. So what we recommend is two to four weeks. And, you know, with Freddie Mac, on the other hand, they cap it at 180 days. So you cannot rent it more than six months out of the year. Mm -hmm. So Fannie Mae is a little more investor friendly. We naturally sell all of these to them. And the with this program, it has to be owner self-managed. So you can't relinquish management control to an outside company. You can't. Oh. Yeah, that's one okay. of the things Like you can't have any kind of agreements with the 10 percent down vacation home loan. That's one of the things that's specifically in the guidelines. Why would they like, why would that affect the loan to stipulate around that? I would almost think that they're like, if this person finds they're bad at self-managing and they want to get a manager to help them be more profitable, why would there be stipulations around that? Great question, because it's a personal use loan. It was originally uh, intended okay. for people that want to buy a vacation home in the mountains or the beach, you know, to get away on the weekends. It was never intended to be this quasi hybrid investment property loan that it's become. Okay. And it's been interesting watching the evolution of this and the evolution of Airbnb because, you know, 10 years ago, this was never, never a thought. But now, especially over the last five years, you know, the government, they hit, you know, hit the pause button for a little while. They were doing a deep dive trying to figure out, okay, how can we rewrite the guidelines? How can we make this, you know, are we going to take, take it off the, the table entirely and get rid of it, make it no longer available because they deemed it as being part of the issue of the lack of inventory that's out there. And so what they did and government and their infinite wisdom came out with a broad brush and made it synonymous with investment property financing, which just basically means they've made it much more expensive because they're really trying to slow down investors from using this program because it's been the preferred method to scale, you know, to scale quickly with only 10% down and, you know, maximize your cash on cash returns. So, mm -hmm. you know, the other side of this, the, I get this question all the time too, because of, you know, the Robinsons and what we've done to help them. You can't use this 10% down vacation home loan in order with, with joint ventures. So if you're going out and bringing outside investors in, you uh, know, going okay. on social media or into, you know, your network of, people beyond your family and friends, you can't use this loan specifically for joint ventures. That's, that's part of it as well. But if you're teaming up with your family, your friends, your, you know, somebody that, you know, I mean, it's, it's perfectly fine. And the most important part with the second home loan is, is it, it, we can't use any rents to help you qualify for the payment. So it's a full hit to your debt to income ratio. Mm -hmm. And so we all have our limit on what we can qualify for with these. And so that f first year, well, after you buy it before, and then you report the income on a tax return, we can't use any rents during that period either. So it's a much slower way to scale versus the next option, which is the 15% down investor loan. By putting that extra 5% down, it takes all those guidelines out of the equation, the second home loan restrictions, you can rent it 
you know, the entire year, you can do a long-term mm-hmm. rental. It can be the house next door where second home loan, it needs to be over 50 miles from where you currently live or from any other market you currently own a home. So if you, with a second home loan, you can only use it once when you're going into a new market. You can't mm-hmm. own a property and then use a 10% down right down the street to scale that way. So you've got one shot at it. And then the 15%, you know, takes, like I said, all of those restrictions out. And then the important part is we can use the forecasted rents to help qualify. So most of our clients can qualify for at least two or three properties for every, you know, using the investor loan versus the second home loan because of the fact that it has a much smaller hit to your debt to income ratio per property versus the second home loan option. So a couple questions. When you talked about all of the down payment assistance that's currently available, is that like a grant or do you actually have to pay back that down payment assistance? Great question. It depends on the state and the county because the some areas it's completely forgivable. Other areas, there's equity share, there's you know, a balloon that's due. There's so many different variations of these down payment assistance programs, and it varies depending on you know state and region. One of the ones that we just, we actually have that came out recently here in the last, you know, three, four months that really is specific to investors that will really help investors is we can do one to two units up to 101.5% financing, and there's no first time homebuyer requirement. So with most of these down payment assistance programs, you cannot have owned a home within the last 36 months. That's the first time homebuyer rule. You can have owned a home five years ago. But you, within the last 36 months, you cannot have been on title to a home in order to qualify for first-time homebuyer assistance. Okay. With this program specifically, it does not have the first-time homebuyer requirement, and it allows for a second unit, which 95, 98% of those other programs nationwide that vary by state only allow for one unit. So that's okay. another caveat to it. And uh, But yes, I mean, back to your original question, it will vary depending on where you know, each client is looking to buy and there's different variations and it's, there's a lot of them right now. Are there any prepayment penalties on these programs? Not on any of the programs that we've discussed so far. Okay. Okay. These are all, yeah, no prepays. Another question would be, so when you said like with that 10%, this, the second home program, you kind of have one shot at it. I think you said, right. You pick well, something 50 miles away and that's it. And when you're going into a new market, and let me clarify, it's a great question. I'm glad you brought this up because it's not, you only have one second home loan. This is a big myth. A lot of, a lot of people think you can go in, you can have multiple second homes. It just needs to make sense. And it can't be within 50 miles of where you go in another home. So I have, you know, a client that's bought up near Yosemite. He has one up there and then he's bought another one, you know, on the, in the desert. So you could theoretically, I mean, we're, you know, in Southern California, you could, buy one. I have clients that have done this, have bought out in Palm Springs and then bought up in Big Bear. It's over Mm -hmm. 50 miles. It's two different markets, mountains, desert. You just can't go buy one out in Palm Springs with 10% down and then go out to, let's say, India or La Quinta. Yeah. Yeah, Or even Joshua Tree. It's kind of a hard, even though it would be outside of 50 miles, it's the same type of market and it's so close that underwriting is going to question it. And one of the biggies I had come up recently that's come up a number of times over the years a client that owns a Airbnb on Kauai, but now wants to buy one in Kona on the big Island. It, it's over 50 miles, but it's the same market. So ah. you can only use that 10% down as the first property that you're buying in a new market. And then if you buy anything else around it, it needs to be a minimum of 15% down. 
Okay. So essentially from the underwriting perspective, they, again, are just trying to look that you're not an investor, that you're coming to buy up in this whole market and like rent out all these units. Like that's the idea behind it. Well, it's not even so much that it's more that, you know, there's restrictions in place for this loan specifically because okay. it's intended for a vacate, you know, for vacation homes. If you already own a home there, why would you want to buy a vacation home? Right. You know, if you think about it like that, you already own a home. So you can't buy another one and call it your vacation home. And it's, yeah, it's okay. one, of the, one of the restrictions. And this is that same program, just to clarify, that has the stipulation that you cannot outsource management. You have to self-manage. Correct. Yeah. Okay. There are no joint, or no joint ventures. You have to, you cannot relinquish management control and there's no timeshare agreements allowed. Okay. Some of the other things they specifically mentioned. So, okay. Yeah. Okay. But you could partner with family or friends on this yeah. one, just not oh, official yeah. investors. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. One thing I know we talked about before we started recording mm -hmm. is you said a big part of your guys' business is helping people five-year plan. Can we kind of dive into what that would look like? Because that is just a huge struggle. I think so many people are so eager to start investing in real estate. They just save up enough for a down payment and jump in and then realize I just spent all my money on my down payment and my renovations. Mm -hmm. And now I don't know how to yeah. scale Where this thing ask? up. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So what would like, what would like a five-year plan with a, with mm -hmm. a client kind of look like? What are the questions you're asking and yeah. what are the things to Great consider? Question. So yeah, it's one of the things that we do with our clients to really get our clients thinking about where they see things going first off over the next five years. And we know five years is a long way out, but it's good to have a goal in mind. So that way we can work backwards. The first year or two are the most important because what we're going to do is we're going to look to see where you are now, help connect the dots over the next year to two years. When it comes to tax time, we need to make sure that, you know, there's enough net income that's going to be documented and or depreciation in order to qualify for the upcoming goals you know, for the next year, because every time you file a tax return, we've got to use that return. If you're going to use any of these full doc options for the next 12 months until the next return is being filed. And so the important part with all of this is, you know, I'm not an accountant. I cannot give specific accounting advice. I have to give that disclaimer, but what we can do is sit down and based off of your goals, if it, you know, clients that say they want to buy three properties over the next 12 months, We'll take a look at their past return. So like in this case, we'll look at the 2021s, see what that looks like and give guidance and say, okay, there's enough income to meet the goals based off of what you reported last year. If there's not, we can say in order to hit the target, if you want to use full doc options, there needs to be roughly X amount. And we typically will loop in our clients' accountants or they can work with one of ours. We teamed up with Amanda Hahn. Which I think you're aware of too. Yeah. So we refer everybody over to her. She's an amazing tax strategist that I love her. <laughs> She's one of the best. But uh, so what we do is we really try to find that equilibrium point where you're not overpaying in taxes and not giving okay. the IRS a dime more than you absolutely have to, while still showing enough income and depreciation in order to qualify for your goals the upcoming year. And then we'll do that on an annual basis. But what okay. we'll, we will also do is we will talk to our client's accountant to make sure that we're not pushing, you know, with whatever guidance we suggest, as far as the income is concerned, it may bump our clients up into the next tax bracket, which may mean a much larger tax liability. It may make more sense to take that money and apply it to a down payment using mm -hmm. one of the alternative financing options like a DSCR, which we can talk about in a minute. But there are, you know, cases like that, especially for our higher income clients, where instead of giving the money to the government just to do one more full doc loan, take that money, apply it to your, you know, the down payment. And then, you know, instead of it going to the government, you've got equity in your home now. 
Wow. I love that you're like thinking about this because I've just always thought like, oh, the lowest down payment you can get. Like if you can finagle your way into a lower <laughs> percentage down, like go for it. But that's a really good point that, yeah, you have to look at the whole picture because I would rather put an extra whatever, 10,000 down to have lower monthly payments. And if that brings down my taxes, then that's a total win. So that's really cool. You're looking at that whole thing. One thing you touched on was how you as an investor, you have to find that sweet spot between like not writing off too much and showing mm -hmm. enough income. What would you recommend for people who are doing this to try and leave a W-2 job? I know with my coaching students, Great that's question. pretty much all of their goals. And I keep yeah. telling them like, hang on as long as you can. Am I misguided telling that people no, that? No. Um, or what's what's the deal make, with that? Hey, you know, it's funny. I've got a post coming up here. I just recorded it yesterday because I've been getting okay. this question a lot recently. Just don't quit until you have a solid plan in place that includes okay. a financing strategy. So I can tell you how many clients over the last five years, specifically over the last five years that, hey, I quit my job, with, <laughs> you know, no plan. And we're just meeting. I'm like, okay, well, now let's try to figure out where we go from here. It is so much easier if we have a conversation while you're still working. Don't give notice because once you do, the, the once we go to get the verification of employment, it's going to mm -hmm. show that you're leaving and that will cause a denial. I mean, we have clients that literally will be in contract on a property. We are almost done. We're getting ready to draw loan docs. The last thing we have to do is call and verify that our client is still working, still employed and doesn't have a, an end date. And we've had clients that'll just, you know, so we have really over the years built that into the front end of don't quit your job. If you're going to No do big it, purchases, no cars. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no quitting don't, your job. <laughs> don't, start, don't start buying furniture or opening credit lines or doing anything until we're finished because <laughs> it can all impact. And it, it has so many times over the years that I've seen. But anyways, back to your, your original question. So, you know, putting that plan together, making sure that you know what this is going to look like, you know, whether it's us or somebody else, whoever you're working with, Make sure that, you know, they've done the deeper dive, make sure that you understand based off of your goals, you know, what you will need to do. Because a lot of times when you quit your job, if there's, we have some clients that have a, you know, solid portfolio that have a lot of income that's coming in. There's different ways that our clients can qualify for alternative financing. We have a business bank statement loan where we can look at bank statements in lieu of a tax return. We have an asset qualifier okay. loan for our clients that don't have any income, or maybe only have a little bit of income but have a, a lot of money in the bank between their checking savings, investments, and retirement. Even if you're not mm. at retirement age, there's a calculation to where we can use that as income. So there's a lot of different ways to structure this to get creative. It's just, you know, working backwards and after our clients have quit, it makes it more challenging than sure. if there's a plan, you know, a transition plan going into it. Okay. Okay. And then what about if somebody, I know for me, at least I'm self-employed and I don't show a lot of income, but my husband, he's a teacher. And so when we bought our investment, they pretty much underwrote like based on him, you know, and he was the one who basically qualified for that. What would you recommend for couples or single people who just are coming into this already without a W-2 job? What is available in that case? It will depend on, you know, what they have available to them. There's so many different ways, like I was mentioned with the different programs to structure this, depending on, you know, what their portfolio is looking like. Do they have significant savings? Do they have partners that are going to come in? I mean, we do JVs. I mean, that's what we did with the Robinsons and why you and I are having this conversation mm -hmm. because we just, we help them build and scale their business and it's all through JVs. And so mm -hmm. um, there's ways to structure it that way. So there, there are a lot of ways to get creative. It just, 
everybody's situation is different and there is no one size fits all option. You know, it's depending yeah. on what you know, each client has available to them. I mean, it may be the business bank statement. It may be the asset quality. It may be the DSCR. We have a lot of clients that just don't have any, can't show any income period or just huge losses on their taxes. And we'll go and we'll just do 20% down DSCRs where DSCR for everybody that doesn't know, it's, it means debt service coverage ratio. It's just a fancy term for does the property cash flow. And this is the loan that's used on the commercial real estate side where we look at the property as a business. This is for business purpose only or business use only. We cannot do per primary residence loans with this. Mm -hmm. And we literally look at the, the property as a business. So we're looking to see, does the rent cover the mortgage payment, including you know PITI, principal, interest, taxes, and insurance? If it does, they're very easy to qualify for. 20% down, we can do short-term or long-term analysis. You're going to get, for the cash flow analysis, you're going to get a yeah. little bit better pricing if it's cash flowing on the long-term basis than you will on the oh, short-term. Okay. Depending on the markets, I mean, we're in 49 states. We're like, you know, we're lending everywhere except for New York right now. And it does vary widely by market on the approach and the strategy that we're using with these. But the takeaway, I think, for your audience should be is that even somebody that has already quit their job, doesn't have any income, or may not have a lot, you know, a ton of money, there are other options as long as they can put 20% down. Once they quit their job, and if they don't have any other way to qualify through one of these other alternatives that I mentioned, and we have to do the DSCR, it's going to be a minimum of 20% for the foreseeable future. There was a 15% down option before March of last year, but with all this crazy uncertainty and volatility, it disappeared overnight and hasn't come back. So one question I have, you said there's better pricing here if you do a long-term rental strategy over short-term. What if somebody's coming into this planning to have it for mixed use, like their peak season, they're planning to do short-term rentals and then whatever, they want snowbirds from Canada coming to their desert home for four months of the year. How would you guys analyze something like that? It's not necessarily, I'm glad you asked this question because it's not necessarily the strategy that we're looking at. We're looking at the appraisal and what the appraiser does for the cat, for the rent survey. So on all investment properties, the appraiser is going to come out and do evaluation, you know, typical appraisal to make sure that Property's worth what our clients are paying for it. And then the they also do a rent survey where they come out and do the same comparable analysis of the rents in the area. Okay. And it would depend on the market on what type of analysis is being used. In an area where it's you know predominantly long-term rentals, the appraisers are going to go to the conservative approach and do the long-term analysis. When we get that back, if that number exceeds whatever the total monthly payment is, by a dollar or more, it cash flows. If it's under and doesn't cash flow, there's still options. The, the down payment goes up a little bit, pricing gets a little worse, but it still can be done even if it's negative cash flow. But what we'll typically do is we will look at it from a short-term rental side. So the example I like to use is Joshua Tree because there's no long-term rentals out there. They're all mm -hmm. short-terms. And so the appraisers have to use the air DNA analysis in their rent survey on the appraisal. And so that's how, that's one way we're getting them through on the, with the short-term rental analysis. The other side is if you're in an area, so you're buying in a market where it's, you know, mostly long-terms and, you know, there's not a lot of short-term data for the appraiser to use, we can use the air DNA analysis, or if it's a current short-term rental, 
we can use a 12, a 12 month history from the seller. So we work that into the contract where they provide the Airbnb printout, or if it's a refinance, then we can use the existing owner, the operator's printout as well. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. And this one you said can only be for business. This The DSCR only applies for business use. So does that mean you cannot block off any time to use the space yourself? Oh yeah. I mean, you can go in and use it. Yeah. I mean, there's nothing that's, you just can't go in. So this is why the rule is set up because it's a, because it is a business purpose, commercial style loan. This is specific in the laws or the guidelines with this, that it cannot be used by a primary. Okay. So one of the things that the, we always look for is does our client have a primary residence currently? Uh, Is there any chance that this, you know, client is going to use this to buy a primary because if you use it, you know, and skirt the law, the rule on this, and they move into it, it makes it much harder to foreclose if they stop making the payments. Mm, okay. Okay. Another thing that pops to mind is the question on regulation. So mm-hmm. let's say they did come in. Let's go with this Joshua Tree example. They come in and they're underwriting it that they expect a certain amount of revenue to be generated. But maybe meanwhile, San Bernardino County is talking about not issuing any more permits mm-hmm. or limiting the number of rental contracts. Is that in consideration or is it just like what's currently on the books will underwrite with that ordinance We're in not, place? Yeah. So that is a great question. We don't even look at. I mean, okay. honestly, yeah, that that's not a consideration for us. Okay. So that would be definitely be for your job. audience, but yeah, yeah. It's not, okay. From an underwriting standpoint, it's not something that we're tracking or even looking into. I mean, it's you know, as long as you know everything makes sense, we're fine. I mean, they, okay. I'd love to ask too, what kind of lending options are available for people trying to do unique stays, tree houses, mm-hmm. lamp sites, anything yeah. like that, that's maybe harder to appraise in a traditional way. Uh, um, what can you offer there? Yeah, we've got some creative financing options on that side as well. Investors that are funding on those. We've So it's always case by case, depending on the property where, you know, tree houses were difficult. You know, the early part of last year, they've gotten much easier now that there's comps. Uh, the glamping sites are becoming more and more prevalent and more and more acceptable. And so we have investors that are willing to take the risk. You're going to pay, you're going to pay more, obviously the rate's going to be higher and it's not going to be a 10% down loan typically, but the money is available for those. What is a typical down payment on that? It's going to be project by project, but okay. you know, it'll depend on the risk level. I mean, it's all based off of how risky is this? If it's very rural and out in the middle of nowhere, how you know it really boils down to how difficult is it going to be to resell this if we end up having to foreclose? So okay. if it's out in the middle of nowhere and it's risky, you're probably going to be looking at 30, 40% down. If it's wow. you know in an area, well, I mean it could be less too. But the you know, if it's in a an area where it's easier, you know, it's less risky, you know, I've seen them done you know, 20 to 30%. Okay. Especially okay. for the glamping sites. The tree, the tree houses we've run into a number of different scenarios with these. So we've had a couple of tree houses that were facades where you literally had a trunk. It looked like a tree, like they literally cut a tree down, left the trunk, built a house on top of it. What we didn't know until the appraiser got out there was that they actually ran all the plumbing. It was a facade, you know, it wasn't an actual tree stump. So they ran all of the plumbing and electrical through it. And that was easy because it's technically a single family. It just looks like a tree house. (laughs) Those are very easy. The true tree houses, 
we look at those case by case. We need to have comps that are similar. We can go out a lot further with those. Okay. You can't have the only tree house in Southern California, let's say, because there's got to okay. be something to comp it out against. Okay. So you're, so if somebody is just thinking way out of the box here, like I'm going to build a UFO in the middle of some random place. You, if there are no comps, they would not be able to qualify for this. I'm not going to say no, because it would, we have creative invest the hard money on the hard money side that are willing okay. to take this kind of risk. So yes, I mean, that's, let's talk about it. I mean, if there's mm. a project, let's explore it. If it's not something that we can do, I have a network of commercial lenders. And so that's part of what I was, put together on my side is that I can't do everything. I specialize in residential real estate, one to four units. We don't even do five to eight, like a lot of lenders mm. do in our space, but I've okay. got a great commercial guy here in Newport that everybody loves. has been doing it as long as I have. He's got a huge network. So I just refer everybody over to him. And then I have other private, a couple of private equity firms here, one in San Clemente and one in Newport that they will do risky stuff. They will cross collateralize property. So like if you have a client that has 10 properties that have equity in them, but they don't have the down payment for the next purchase, we can cross collateralize the properties and use that to securitize that property. So oh, okay. that's an option on the creative side. We also do portfolio lending where if you have a client that's buying, you know, let's say a block of 40 homes, they're all going to be short-term rentals. We can do those with one big loan. So there's options on that side as well. So I would say... If anybody has any questions on any of these options, glamping or UFO homes, or tree, <laughs> homes tree houses, just reach out and we can schedule a time to talk and discuss it because there's usually a path forward with it. And if I can't specifically, like within my organization, I'll have somebody in my network that will be able to help. So that's interesting what you said with like that example of 40 homes on a block. You can get mm -hmm. one loan for that whole thing. Mm -hmm. You don't have yeah. to have like 40 mortgages. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yep. I did not know you could do that. Okay. But then they would all have to be used for the same purpose. You wouldn't be able to move into one of them and rent out the other 39. Like they're all considered. Yeah. You're going to need to be for investment purposes on this side. Yes. Okay. But you can do different strategies. They don't all need to be short term or mid or long. Like you can okay. diversify if you'd like, but yeah, this is investor money. They, so th the reason being is, is it comes down to the foreclosure rule because if, when you're living in the house, it's much harder for us to foreclose and take the property back than if it's an investment property, the, the okay. rules are completely different and it all changed after the collapse, you know, in 0809 and they made it much more difficult on the primary residence side for us as a servicer or a lender to come back and take the collateral. If you know, you stop making the payments. Okay. What are the lending options out there for someone doing new construction of a standard residential home? But, you know, if they just want to buy the land, what, what do they need to bring to the table to yeah, get this going? Great question. Yeah. So the primary and second home new build stuff is, you know, it, it's been here the entire time and it's been relatively, relatively easy. You know, everything's gotten more difficult over the last year, year and a half, but this is one space because going back to what we're talking about, as far as taking the property back, worst case no investor wants to foreclose on land because land will sit and it takes forever to sell. Same thing with construction that's halfway done. You know, mm -hmm. nobody wants to come in. So like the renovation stuff is very easy. Like we do fix and flips for new first time flippers. And what we're doing a lot of right now, because the fix and flip market slowed down a bit, obviously with what's been going on with property values. But the strategy that a lot of our clients have been using is come in, use the fix and flipper investor renovation loan, 
to renovate a property that needs work and then turn it into a short, mid or long-term rental. And so that really took the, the place of the fix and flip for a little while, especially when things, there was a lot of uncertainty last year, but now fix and flip has been coming back. I mean, it's, we're doing a ton of them now, but back to your original question about the new build. So on the investor side right now, there's not a lot of money for first time newbie investors, unless there's a sponsor, somebody that's willing to come on that has experience. And so what we will end up doing is, is if, you know, we're going to need a, a general contractor, as long as that general contractor will sign on and ensure that the work is going to get completed through a guarantee, then we're fine for newbies, you know, newbie builders. If your clients have experience with this, we'll do anywhere from a 36 to 60 month look back. If they've got one or two under their belt or a family member, friend, whoever that's, that has experience that's willing to jump on, we're definitely willing to take a look at it because the, the risk tolerance is get, is increasing. I mean, it's six months ago is a nightmare in this space. Now it's becoming much, much easier. And as we go forward, it's going to continue as we, now that everybody's it's coming around, the market's not going to crash. Everybody knows that this is not 08, 09 all over again. Yeah. Not going to crash. I'm screaming that from the rooftop. <laughs> uh, it's, it's now making it easier to secure riskier funding now that, you know, we're slowly starting to make our way out of this. And it looks like, you know, the Fed is, we'll see what ends up happening. It's August 24th, 2023, and they've got the Jackson Hole Symposium tomorrow. And we'll see what the Fed comes out with. Jerome Powell speaking on Friday. But we'll see where it goes from here. But it looks like they're coming closer to ending this tightening cycle and hopefully getting closer to reversing monetary policy and you know start easing again, which is just going to open up the floodgates. When that day comes, it may not be until sometime next year. Things are going to get a lot easier very quickly. Okay. And why? Well... I wonder, like it will get easier, I'm sure, but then also that means more people are diving in at the same time, right? There's more competition in a way. So maybe take and demand. Now. <laughs> That's exactly why the real estate market is not going to collapse because there's just no supply out there. There's yeah. still plenty of demand, even at these higher rate levels, you know, that we're at right now. And you know, we'll we'll see the inflection point we see coming, you know, as far as rates are concerned, is somewhere around five and a half, maybe six percent. Once we hit those levels again. Buyers are going to be jumping back in left and right. I mean, we already saw it as we approached yeah. 6% earlier this year, you know, in January. And yeah, it'll, it'll be interesting to see where things go from there. But the smart buyers have been paying attention to this, haven't been watching the news and getting stuck in all the negativity out there on YouTube and is still taking advantage of the opportunities while they're there right now. And part of, you know, what we do as another you know value add for our clients is we're constantly trying to figure out new strategies, new ways to maximize our clients' cash flow and cash on cash return. And one of the, a couple of the strategies that we're using right now on all of these programs, and it varies depending on the strategy and which program, but on primary residences, we can do up to a 9% seller credit that we can apply to a rate buy down. And so what mm -hmm. we'll do is we'll build that into the purchase price, have the seller pay for it, and we could buy the rates down into the, the fives on second homes, we can do up to a 6% seller credit. And we have been taking that seller credit and applying it to a rate buy down and getting it down into like the low sixes, low to mid sixes, depending on our client's credit score. And then with the 15%, it's capped at two. So it makes it a little more difficult on that one to get the rate lower than about the mid sevens right now. 
But the the DSCR, we actually just opened up an option where we can do two things. There's a what's called a two one buy down, which means that let's just say for these purposes, the rate is eight and a half percent. Now that's the note rate for the for the two one buy down. The first year, the rate's going to be six and a half percent. So for twelve months, you've got a payment based off of six and a half, and then for the next twelve months, it goes up to seven and a half, and then the rest of the remaining term, it goes to the eight and a half. So this buys some time while we're waiting for rates to come down. And, you know, we then will implement the refi strategy once, uh, you know, it makes sense. So that's one option. And then the other alternative with this DSCR, we have a 6% credit now that actually just opened up in the last two weeks. It used to be three. Now it's six. Yeah, I was looking at pricing this morning. And we can get those rates on the DSCR down into the low sevens and even high sixes depending on credit score, cash flow analysis, and then the down payment. Because if you know some of our clients are putting more than 20% down, right. you're going to get better pricing if you put, you know, 25 or 30, you know, if you have the ability to do that as well. So okay. So that leads perfectly to I think this is kind of the last point I want to touch on, but can you explain interest rates to us? Because I've never really understood this when they say like interest rates are at 7% or whatever. But then I hear people that say like, I need to build my credit score so that when I go buy a home, I can try to get a lower interest rate. So can you explain this? I feel like I'm missing something. How are interest rates determined? Okay, great question. And to the end of that real quick, so I don't overlook this, you know, clients that want to are trying to get their credit score up in order and preparation, start having the conversation with whoever you're going to use for financing early. Like in our case, we'll use a soft credit poll. We don't even need to do a hard credit check. Okay. Typically until our clients are getting into contract, unless there's significant credit issues and we'll need to see, you know, what all three scores look like. So we can put together a plan to say, do this to get your score up and maximize the amount of money, you know, usage of, any money that they have. So we can actually do what's run what's called a credit analyzer, where we have a system that reviews the credit report, gives us pointers with a probability of, you know, pay this card down to 2,500, pay this one down to zero. And it says, you know, with like 96% certainty. So we'll provide those to our clients. So that way they're not just, you know, they have $10,000 and not just throwing it here, here and there exactly without having a clear plan in place. And I call it just have a plan in place, just, you know, make sure you're talking it through with whoever you're working with. And then as far as interest rates are concerned, so rates, are you talking about as a, on a more macro level, you want me to talk about how rates are determined or are you talking about? No, not that, but it's just, I've seen people like panic over, you know, interest rates are up, interest rates are down, which I know that's happening on the macro level. But then also I know when we sat down for our purchases, it was like, okay, let's see, here are the interest rates we can get you. And if you buy some PMI or whatever, we can, we can do a different rate. Or if you put more down, we can do a different rate. And so I've just always been confused when people panic over like rates are 7%. I'm always like, aren't you able to kind of negotiate a little bit what they are, but I feel like I'm missing something. So. Yeah. So on that level, so that's why rates vary depending on what each client qualifies for, because let's just say, you know, client that's coming in with 20% down on a primary, they're going to get a much better rate than a client that's doing a 10% down vacation home loan. And it's really, it all boils down to risk level. I mean, that, just like anything, you know, insurance, whatever you're looking at, it's all based off of risk. So when we look at it from our standpoint, let's just say on a primary, you know, if you're, you're putting 20% down, the pricing's a little bit better than if you're putting 5% down. 
That's why you have to pay mortgage insurance. Typically, if you're putting less than 20% down, there are some workarounds on that. I won't get too deep in the weeds, but we can break it up into two loans to avoid mortgage insurance. So for okay. clients that are interested in that, we can have a conversation, but, and then it, there's adjusters. So depending on the loan amount, credit score, property type, you know, condos are riskier than single family residences. So there's a pretty big adjuster for condos mm -hmm. across the board for, you know, in primary second home or investment properties. And the reason being is because the tend to sit on the market longer. And if they're subject mm -hmm. to, you know, the HOA, if the HOA, you know, goes bankrupt, it becomes a problem. You know, if the condo complex becomes unwarrantable because of what, you know, there's many issues that you, that can arise. It just, there's pricing adjustments because of that debt to income ratio, that kind of stuff. So that's why it's like, you know, I've had clients where I'm talking to two neighbors and one is getting a different rate than the other, yeah. but I can't tell them why, because I can't, you know, take this very seriously. We have a duty to our clients. We cannot divulge information from one of our clients about the other, but it puts us in an interesting position when one's pissed off because his rate's a quarter point higher than his neighbors yeah. because he's got a credit score that's, you know, 50 or 75 points lower. So that's really what goes into the equation when we're looking at pricing and there's different. So basically the, the Fed is almost setting like the baseline. And then from there, <laughs> you're able to work with clients to either go like, down a little bit and save them money, or it might have to go up if they've got, you know, See, that's more on the macro level. The okay. Fed does not, this is a huge misnomer. The Fed does not oh. set mortgage rates. So oh. the way that what the Fed does, okay. So the Fed is controlling the overnight money. I don't want to get too deep in the weeds. I've this is interesting. Go, so. You don't have yeah. to go super in depth, but I'm genuinely interested in this. Nope. So, okay. yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it with, with what they do, every time they raise and lower rates, that does not directly impact mortgage rates on traditional mortgages. It does impact home equity lines, credit cards, student loans. Mm -hmm. So anytime the Fed raises the Fed funds rate, the prime rate, which is always three percentage points over the Fed funds rate, will go up or down based off of what they do. Our car loans, credit cards, HELOCs, home equity lines of credit, you know, second mortgages, student loans, those are all directly tied. So like if you have a home equity line, every time they raise or lower the Fed funds rate, our rates are going up. And it's just incredible how, how much the payment has gone up on most HELOCs over the last year. When it comes to 30-year fixed mortgages, they're tied to mortgage-backed securities. These are bonds that are traded on the secondary market, just like treasury bills, you know, T-bills, the most the safest investment you know, in the, in the world. And so depending on what traders are willing to pay for those bonds at any given moment, that is what really determines our pricing. And the problem has been is that there, there's the biggest spread between the two that we've, we've seen. And that's really what's pushed mortgage rates up. Because when you look at inflation, inflation has been one of the primary drivers of mortgage rates recently. Because if you think of you know, a bond trader that owns a mortgage-backed security at a certain level, inflation erodes that rate of return. So let's just say you have mm. a, a note or coupon ad at, at like 5%. Inflation has been exceeding 5%. So they're losing money on that. Now inflation's coming down. They're starting to make money, but they, at, that is how it's actually traded. So they're either taking a loss or making money depending on that bond and okay. the rates are determined by, you know, the fluctuations in that market, in the bond market. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. Yeah, it's, it's complicated. Yeah. That's why it's the important part 
And this is why, you know, I'd say this in my presentations, the, what the Fed is doing does not directly correlate to 30-year fixed mortgage rates. It has an impact. It definitely does because the secondary market is making adjustments based off of what the Fed's doing. And part of what we've seen recently is, you know, over the last you know, six to nine months, Wall Street has had this rosy outlook that you know, rates are coming down at the end of the year. The Fed's not going to stick to their plan of their 2% inflation target, and they're going to reverse monetary policy quickly you know, at the first sign of any type of trouble. Well, we saw some trouble with the regional banks. We saw a few go under and they blinked, but they didn't reverse monetary policy. And so it's taken a long time for Wall Street to really come around to the fact that the Fed's serious about this. The reason being is, is the biggest underlying reason why they're doing what they're doing right now doesn't get a lot of publicity is if you look back to the 70s and early 80s, last time we had inflation like this, the Fed took their foot off their gas too, off their gas too quickly. So at the first sign that inflation was starting to come down, they reversed monetary policy, inflation skyrocketed mm -hmm. and became very sticky. And it took a Fed chair Volcker to come in and really squash it and destroy the economy in the meantime. So what they're trying to do this time is hit this elusive soft landing of really taking it right up to the line with the Fed funds rate to ensure that they have stamped out inflation because the longer they allow this to occur, the more it becomes ingrained in our psyche as a you know, consumer, as the general public, and every decision that we make, businesses make, all based off of where is inflation going to be? How much do I need to bake in in case, you know, and it gets passed all the way down the supply chain? And so that's why they're, they are doing everything in their power to not make the same mistake as the past while not destroying the economy. And it's been a fine, fine line. It's going to be interesting to see where things go from here. But my feeling is they're getting closer and closer to some type of, I still can't believe these words are coming out of my mouth, but soft-ish <laughs> landing where we, we're going to prop most likely hit some type of, you know, mild to maybe moderate recession, unless something really breaks, like something significant happens. We have another black swan event or something like that. Anything's possible. But it's just, you know, at this point, all signs are pointing to, and this is the important part to all of us, mortgage rates staying higher for longer. Because if they hit a soft landing or anything even close to it, and we hit a mildish, even light moderate recession, there's not going to be as much incentive for them to reverse monetary policy as quickly and start lowering the Fed funds rate, which means rates are going to stay higher for a longer period of time. And I would recommend to anybody listening, just prepare for that. You know, I mean, it's don't go into How? Well, How do we prepare? a lot of clients that, you know, have talked to other lenders or I don't know where they're getting this information, maybe YouTube, where it's like, go in, buy the property. It doesn't matter if it's losing money because you're going to be able to refinance in three months or six months. Don't, you know, I mean, that's if you're losing a little bit or you're breaking even or making a little bit and you're comfortable with it, great. But don't go into it losing money just to get a property, you know, to buy a property because this may take longer for us to see lower rates again. And odds are we're not going to see anything like the last couple of years anytime soon. To be mm -hmm. quite honest, I hope we don't ever again because we're going to have much larger problems with the economy if we start seeing 2 and 3% mm -hmm. rates again. I mean, it was a very unhealthy time for our economy, the real estate market. And I would say just make sure you're you're comfortable with whatever, you know, we all have our own risk tolerance. You know, we all inherently as investors like to take risk. We like to push ourselves out of our comfort zone because we know success is on the other side, Yeah. but just 
don't take it too far. You know, you got to find that, that balance and, and know that, you know, the real estate investing is a long game. I mean, this is not short term. It's not like the last two years. This is not, you know, this has been a, a false market that's been created by the fed and it went on for far too long. So now, I mean, we're in a position where, you know, you really got to work for it. I mean, this is, you really got to understand how to run the analysis, run the numbers. You're not just gonna be able to buy an Airbnb or any property for that matter. And just, you know, list it what, you know, and expect yeah. to have the same kind of returns that we did over the last few years. I mean, it's just, it's, un- it was unrealistic then. And it's, you know, we're most likely not going to see like that, anything like that again, anytime soon. <laughs> This was really, really great information. I'm really glad we went down this rabbit hole. It was super interesting. But overall, I guess the takeaway from this is just to reach out to you guys. It seems like even if you specifically Blueprint Home Loans doesn't have the right solution for something, you can direct people to it. And I love what you said too, that even if somebody is just preparing for a purchase a few years away, and right now all they want to do is raise their credit score, still reach out to you to have a plan in place. I think a lot of people are scared they can't come to a lender or can't ask for help until they're ready to go. And that's not true at all. People, the the sooner you ask for help, the more prepared you'll be when you are ready. Yeah, Jeff, thank you so much for everything. I will put in the show notes how to connect with you, but just really quick for people listening with headphones in, where where can they go jump in and find you? Yeah, it's just jeffthemortgageexpert.com. I'm on Instagram only right now. Well, Facebook too, but it's jeff.themortgageexpert. Come to find out there's another Jeff, the mortgage expert out there that has How underscores. <laughs> so, yeah. So it's Jeff dot the mortgage expert, or you can just call me on my cell. It's area code 949-306-1287. One more time, 949-306-1287. Perfect. Thank, Thank you. Yeah, of course. And again, we'll link all of that below. And just again, Blueprint is with no E. It's B-L-U, Print Home Loans. So just note that. If you Google Blueprint Home Loans with an E, it'll still come up. Oh, there you go. All right. Ignore me then. (laughs) Jeff, thank you so much for everything. We'll talk soon. Yeah. Thank you, Natalie. And finally, for this week's Am I the Airbnb Hole, we have... A change of pace here, you guys. We have no Airbnb holes today. Let me read you this story, and I hope that it puts a smile on your face like it did mine. This host posted, My guest of 100 nights just checked out this morning, and wow, they must have been in the one out of 1,000 from reading all of the disaster comments of other hosts on here. Got a text from the guy saying his wife cleaned before they left. I was thinking that just meant they tidied up, some linens and bedding in the basket, dishes left to dry, etc. Not the case at all. She deep cleaned the entire cabin, washed all linens slash bedding, made the bed exactly how it was 100 nights ago when they checked in. I actually ended up refunding the cleaning fee because it took me just less than an hour to touch up. I won't share his last name, but if you get a month-long stay from a traveling contractor named Sheldon from Colorado, consider yourself lucky. Wasn't that so sweet? I know, I know. This was a total change of pace. We, this is episode 72 of this podcast. That means we have covered 71 Airbnb holes before this. 71! 71 people where at least one person in this scenario, if not all, sucked. Very nice to see how lovely people can be. Just a good reminder. And I will say, I will say, I really do like that in this case, the owner decided to refund the cleaning fee. I will say, though, do not feel, if this ever happens to you, 
Count yourself lucky. Be thankful. Do not feel like you have to refund the cleaning fee. And the only reason I say that is because in this case, it sounds like the owner was the one who showed up to clean his place. So I think it's totally fine if he decides he can refund the cleaning fee, um, especially for a hundred night stay. I mean, those people must have paid him a good amount of money to be there for three and a half months. But in our case, I would be sending my cleaning team out there and I still have to pay my cleaners even just for their time to show up. So if you feel compelled to refund a cleaning fee in a situation like this, by all means, go for it. I think that's lovely. I just don't want anyone to walk away from this thinking that anytime a guest leaves it cleaner than they found it, you have to refund the cleaning fee now because we're running a business here and you do have to pay your cleaners, not just for the time spent cleaning, but their time getting there. And you just want to treat your cleaners well because they are an essential part of your business. But I love this story. Such a sweet change of pace. There are great guests and great hosts out there. And the truth is most hosts and guests are truly, truly wonderful. We read the bad apples on this show and that's what I pick out because I think it makes for entertaining content. But just remember that most guests and hosts truly are wonderful. People just don't share about the the good side of things, unfortunately, myself included. I'm part of the problem. But here you go, okay? I give you one happy story. Now, the next 71 will be Airbnb holes. And with that, it is now checkout time. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you back here next week. Lastly, as Airbnb hosts, we all can appreciate a good five-star review. So you already know a great review on this podcast would mean so much to me. Please subscribe, review, share, and connect with me in the show notes below. Bye.